But what we, what we see in Deuteronomy is the beginnings of, of, of Moses. They are on the cusp of entering the promised land. And Moses is here with this new generation. And he's offering them. God is offering them through Moses a renewal of the covenant that he made with their forefathers. In spite of their sinfulness, in spite of their rebellion, in spite of their lack of faithfulness, in spite of all that's happened, all that's transpired, all that Moses has reminded them of, we see a God here offering a renewal of a covenant. And, and I realize that, that when you got up this morning, nobody got up hoping to hear about how sinful they were or hear how maybe wretched they are, but we have to see the people that God is renewing this covenant with so that we will best understand the goodness and the faithfulness of a God that would renew a covenant with that kind of people. God is not renewing a covenant with a great people. He's not renewing this covenant with a people that deserves, that warrants, that justifies the renewal. The fact that we see this renewal is because of of the faithfulness and the forgiveness of the great God that we serve. This is the character of God. God is faithful and He is forgiving, not because of Israel, but because of His character. And you can take this all the way back to Genesis 12. God entered into a covenant with Abraham. And in spite of Israel's lack of faithfulness, in spite of Israel's lack of loyalty, lack of fidelity to that covenant, God remains faithful and true to that covenant, and that's what we see here. And, and what I want to do is I want to take that character of God, not only for Israel, but I want to take it forward to us today. Because I want us to see today that, that we too are like Israel. We too are undeserving of God's favor, undeserving of His grace. We don't warrant that, and yet God remains faithful. He still forgives sin where it's repented of even to the point of, of what we'll see here in the picture of the Lord's Supper where Jesus says He's inaugurating a new covenant, even to the point of death on a cross, God was willing to be faithful. Even to the point of putting His Son on a cross, God was willing to be faithful. Of making Him who knew no sin to be sent on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Even to that, God was faithful. And again, what we see in Deuteronomy 29 is this new generation is about to enter the promised land. Moses is about to die. He's given them, he, he has come before them right before they enter, and he is renewing this covenant with them. He's, it's a renewal. It, it would be in, in a similar way, think of it this way, of, of you renewing your vows with your spouse, just looking back at, at what's happened, looking back on the prior years and saying, hey, I'm still here. I'm still faithful. And, and that's what we see in, in verses 10 through 13 as Lee read. He says, verse 12, that you may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and into the, His oath which the Lord is making with you today in order that He may establish you today as His people and that He may be your God. God is renewing His covenant with this generation. The, the previous generation, again, they died in the wilderness. This is a new generation. And He's saying, look, I'm still faithful. And the reality is, is he's putting before them, right before them, we'll see it next week even more clearly. You'll see it in verse 30. He says, I have set before you, verse 19, 
I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Choose life in order that you may live and your descendants. We see that same thing in Joshua 24, 15. Choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God has set before them, He has set before us the choice, life or death. What's it going to be? And God is imploring them to choose life, to follow. He's saying, if you follow me, there will be tremendous blessings. If you, but if you turn your back on me, there will be tremendous curses. That's what he says at the end of 29. That's what he's talking about, the land. You're not going to presume upon his grace. There will be consequences for turning your back on his grace. That's what he's telling them. I love the fact here in, in, in chapter 29 the, that speaks to God's faithfulness. Look with me at verses 5 through 7. Moses says, I have led you, and he's speaking on behalf of God. Of course, he says, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandal has not worn out on your foot. I can't get, go my kids to go six months without the sandal wearing out on their foot, without their clothes wearing out on them. For better or worse. Forty years. God made sure their clothes didn't wear out. He made sure their sandals didn't wear out. He made sure they were fed. He made sure they were taken care of. God's faithfulness to them stretched from the most minute things even to the defeat of their enemies. And that's what he says there in, in verse 7. We defeated them. No matter who your enemy was, no matter who came before you, we defeated them. Obviously, it was God who did that. Our, our kids, they like to, when we get into our neighborhood, they like to drive. Now, this may be good, you know, I don't know if our neighbors care about it, but I'll let our kids, they'll get in the seat with me and they'll quote-unquote drive. They'll get out of the car and they'll tell you they drove. Really, who drove? I drove. I'm not that foolish. Their hands are on the steering wheel. They, and, and again, God is the one that's defeating their, their obedience. They did what God told them. Ultimately, it was God and His faithfulness that led them to defeat their enemies. God was faithful in all things, from the smallest to the greatest, God was faithful. And in response to that faithfulness, in response to that character, what Deuteronomy is calling for, what Moses is calling for here is loyalty and fidelity in response. Not to earn God's favor, not to merit God's favor. Loyalty and fidelity in response. And Moses is exhorting them here, just like previous generations had been exhorted, to faithfully follow the Lord because of His forgiveness and His faithfulness towards them in spite of their disobedience. He's saying faithfully follow. Covenant loyalty, that's what he's calling them to. And yet at the same time, here's the amazing thing, at the same time, God knows that they won't obey as they should. That's 19 through 28 of this chapter. He knows their response to God's faithfulness will not be faithfulness. It will be a lack of faithfulness. And God is very clear to them, this is what's going to happen. And the rest of the Old Testament, uh, many, many of our ladies are going through the amazing collection you're, you're there in the middle of the Old Testament. It is a recollection of exactly Israel turning their backs on the faithfulness of God. And God had to judge. They would commit spiritual adultery. They would pursue other gods. And all of that in spite of God's faithfulness. And in the midst of God's faithfulness, they did that. And, and as I read these chapters, what astounded me most was not that they sinned, 
but that God renewed the covenant with them knowing that they would sin. I mean, imagine, imagine renewing your vows with your spouse today knowing that in two months they would commit adultery. That, that's what you have here. God, God is showing His character on full display. That's how faithful and loving and forgiving He is. Now, I don't, I don't want you at all to think, well, then we just live how we want to live. They were punished greatly because of their sin. We will be disciplined greatly because of our sin. But what I want us to see here is the faithfulness and the forgiveness of God. They were indeed punished. Don't miss that. But God never, ever wavered in His loyalty to His people. He never wavered. In the midst of their sinfulness, no matter how great their sinfulness, God was faithful to forgive their sins, and He is still faithful in spite of our sin. And, and I'm going to ask us just for a moment, uh, I'm going to tell a story, and many of you, as I tell this story, many of you will be familiar with this story. I'm going to ask you if you would close your eyes, try not to fall asleep, but they say a picture is worth a thousand words. I, I want, as I tell this story, I want as best as you can, I want you to try to picture this story with me. Just do, just, I know you think it's weird, but just close your eyes for a second. Try not to fall asleep. We'll, we'll, we'll sound the gong when I'm done to wake everybody up when I'm done. But just close your eyes just, and picture this. As I tell this story, I want you to try to picture in your mind, I want you to try to put yourself in this person's shoes. Imagine with me for a moment that you were without a spouse that you were even a prophet without a spouse. Imagine that you long for a spouse, desired a spouse. Imagine God coming to you and commanding you to take a spouse. The joy, the excitement, but here's the kicker. Imagine being told that the spouse that you're going to take will be unfaithful. Can you imagine in your mind what, what you would feel at that moment? The spouse that you take will be unfaithful. Imagine that. Imagine the emotion. Imagine what would be going through your mind, going through your heart at that time. Hey, take, take, take an unfaithful spouse. Take, take that one. They're going to be unfaithful, but take that one. Imagine night after night how you would feel as you faithfully remained home and you remained faithful to your spouse and night after night your spouse was unfaithful. Imagine that. Imagine how you'd feel. Imagine how you'd respond. Uh, imagine that, that one day you're, there's a pregnancy. Uh, imagine taking a spouse who would bear you children, three in total, and you don't even know if they're yours. Imagine caring for children who's, who, who you're commanded to give names to that would remind you of your spouse's unfaithfulness. That whenever you called out their name at the playground, whenever you called out their name in the city, everyone would know what that meant. It means unfaithful. Imagine parenting children. Imagine having a spouse who's unfaithful and parenting children faithfully that you don't even, you're not even sure if they're your own. 
Imagine the whole plot thickens and thickens and thickens until one day your spouse just simply doesn't come home anymore. Your, your spouse has left you. They're in the arms of another. They're living with another. How would you respond? How would you respond to that person? Imagine keeping your eyes closed. Imagine how you would feel when, when you heard all the talk around town. All the murmurs, all the whispers. People saying that you were a, a fool for staying, for sticking around, that, that, that you should have just left them. Just leave them. Forget it. Say, saying that you got played for a fool, that, that you deserve better. Imagine, imagine hearing that night after night and remaining faithful. Imagine in spite of all of that, you couldn't stop loving your spouse. But yet that spouse had left you, and maybe it was the clothes, maybe it was the fame, maybe it was the money. Maybe it was all those things that drew your spouse away. Imagine wondering night after night what you did wrong. How did things get here in spite of your faithfulness? Imagine what would go through your mind knowing night after night that your spouse is simply passing from person to person, living it, seemingly living it up in sin, having their way, and here you are with stuck at home being faithful to the unfaithful with children that you're not even sure if they're yours. I imagine your love still being there for this person to the point that you find out that these other loves can't provide for your spouse the way that they once would, and you go to the person that your spouse is living with and you give that person money to provide for your unfaithful spouse. I imagine you, you going to them and, and, and giving, them, giving this person funds to provide for a spouse that's not even faithful. Imagine the humility. Imagine introducing yourself to that person and saying, hey, you know, that, that, that's, that's, that's my spouse. Would, would, here's some gold, here's some silver. Will, will you buy some things for my spouse? Will, will, will you provide this for my spouse? Imagine providing faithfully for the one who was unfaithful. Can you imagine doing that? Ima imagine, imagine the emotions, the that would be going through your mind. Imagine the kind of love that would have to be in place for you to do that. To continually provide for someone who is unfaithful. Imagine, imagine if you could see as this individual provides for your spouse and with the money you provided. They, they provide things for your spouse with what you've provided. All the while they take credit for it. All the while, your spouse has no clue that it's actually you. All the while, your spouse is thanking them. All the while, your spouse is praising them, and they're taking credit for something that they didn't do. They love the person. They thank the person for providing things that they actually didn't provide. True love had provided these things. Yet, in the midst of unfaithfulness, imagine that. Imagine in the spite of your faithfulness, in spite of your love, in spite of your unfailing commitment that nothing changes. Imagine, imagine at one point being forced to just take your hand off and, and let the consequences ride. Imagine taking your hand off and letting your spouse 
eat the fruit of their folly. Imagine the relationship culminates in this, that one day your spouse is, handed, is sold into the slave market by somebody who really doesn't even own them, doesn't love them, doesn't care for them. Imagine hearing about this and that your love for your spouse takes you to that slave market. Imagine one by one, imagine with me how you would feel as one by one you watch individuals be sold. Imagine standing there in a crowd where you know the people and they know you and appear and your wife appears, your husband appears on the trading blocks. Imagine, imagine the humility if people start bidding on your spouse and you have to outbid them for an unfaithful spouse. Imagine humility. Imagine if this was your spouse. How would you respond? How would you feel? Ima imagine for a minute the bidding begins. 12, 12, 12 pieces of silver. 15 pieces of silver. 18 pieces of silver. Now, now, now you start bidding silver and barley. The price goes higher and higher and higher. But, but in your heart, you love them and you say, no price is too high to get them back. And whatever the price is, you pay it. And eventually you buy your spouse back. But, but imagine that you did all of that not to punish them. Imagine that you bought them out of the slave market not to punish them. You bring them home not to punish them, but to redeem them and to love them. And to care for them. Imagine that you do all this not to hold it over them, but to forgive them and to wipe it away from them, to restore them. Uh, imagine if you did all that and you got your spouse home, what would you ask of them? What would you expect out of them? Imagine that. Can you imagine loving somebody that way? Can we imagine doing all that to love somebody that way? Look at me. Look at me. Open your eyes. Look at me. You may be asking yourself, could that happen? Will that happen? Did it ever happen? And my answer is yes, it does. It has and it does. Some of you may have figured it out as I told that story, but that story is a picture of Hosea. If you read the story of Hosea, that is the story of Hosea. And Hosea is telling a bigger story. You see, Hosea in that story, Hosea is a picture of God. He's a prophet. He's a man of God, and he's told by God to go take Gomer as his wife. That right there, forgive me if you're visiting, your name is Gomer, that'd be difficult as it was. But then he's told that she will be unfaithful. But go take her anyway. And Gomer is to picture. Gomer is a representation of Israel. Hosea is God. Gomer is Israel. I, did, I didn't make up that story. I didn't make up the details. I didn't make them up to be, to be um, you know, 
sensational or anything. That is Israel's history. That's Israel. Hosea is a picture. That is how God has loved Israel. The whole story of Hosea is told with a purpose. It was not drama for drama's sake. It's real. God is teaching the nation through Hosea exactly how sinful and undeserving they are of His love. And through Hosea, through Hosea, He is showing them the depth of their sinfulness, but yet the depth of His awesomeness and His forgiveness and His faithfulness. And see, in order to understand how unbelievable God is and how good He is, sometimes, oftentimes, you have to understand how unfaithful and how sinful the person loved is. And Israel would have never confessed to being Gomer. And so Israel is, God is having to show Israel exactly who they are and how unfaithful they are. And I hope you see, as you hear that story, I hope we can better grasp the weight and, and, the, and the amazement and the wonder that God would renew a covenant with this people. That's the very people that God renewed the covenant with, knowing that would take place. This in Deuteronomy 29 is not a renewal of a covenant with a good people. It's not a renewal of a covenant with a loyal people, with, a, with, with the obvious choice, with a, with a holy, with a righteous people. No, it's a covenant with an utterly sinful people. And Hosea's, Hosea's choice of Gomer, the unfaithful one, is a picture of God choosing Israel, the unfaithful one. He's helping them to understand, Israel, you did not warrant, you did not deserve, you, nothing about my choosing of you had anything to do with you. They, they would have held up Abraham as righteous, as, oh, Abraham lived a life that he deserved to be chosen, and God is saying he did not. Abraham was a sinner, just like you and I are sinners, and did not deserve to be chosen. And yet God chose. To, to, to establish a people out of a, out of a sinner such as Abraham. A sinner. But that's not what the Jews would have thought. They would have overestimated their goodness, their greatness, their righteousness, and God is having to show them, no, that's not, that's not you. Their self-righteousness would not allow them to see exactly who they were as sinners. But, but it also, Hosea also pictures not only their choosing, but it pictures their behavior after they were chosen. It, it wasn't like they responded well and were loyal. They did all that stuff after God had chosen them. Their response was to pursue other lovers, to pursue other gods, to pursue, to willfully disobey, and yet God never wavered in His faithfulness. Did He punish them? He did. Did He allow them? Eventually, He allowed them to be captured? He did. Chapter 30, we're going to see it next week. He's promised to restore them. He did. He remained faithful. But, but I want us to see in chapter 29 a picture of God's love. This is a picture of God's love. Of God loving sinners. Of God loving a people who in no way, shape, or how deserve to be loved. This is a picture of how faithful and forgiving God is. That He would renew a covenant with a people that has been unfaithful and will be unfaithful. And to bring it home in, in preparing for the Lord's Supper, before we sit in judgment of Israel and Gomer, here's the bad news. You and I are Gomer. 
Not only Israel, Gomer, but you and I are Gomer. See, the, 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 the renewal of this covenant, the, the, the faithfulness of God, the forgiveness of God goes way beyond Israel to you and I today. We, we have, unfortunately, in our sin, you and I have acted all of our lives exactly the way that Israel has acted. And yet God was willing to put His Son on a cross to die for us, that whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord in His faithfulness, in His goodness, in His mercy. Romans 2, 4 says, Do not think lightly of His kindness and tolerance, knowing that it is that kindness and tolerance that leads us, that draws us, that woos us to repentance. We didn't figure God out. God wooed us to Himself in spite of our, in spite of our unfaithfulness. It, we, God was Hosea that while we were committing sin and while we were chasing other lovers and all this, God was still faithful to provide things for us, to provide the means. Did we give Him credit for it? We did not. Did we bless Him for it? No, we did not. We worshiped the stuff rather than the giver, exactly like Gomer had done. And yet God never wavered in His faithfulness. It's from the hand of God that we have every single thing that we need. Food, clothing, money, shelter. Yet, how often do we thank everybody else but God? How often do we think we deserve to be blessed? How often do we act as if our sin debt really wasn't that big, that God just kind of really didn't rescue us. He just kind of pushed us over the hump. See, when we do that, when we do that, here, here's why I say all this. I, I realize that a sermon like this is not number one on the hit list of how to grow a church. It's not number one on the hit list. Hey, you're trying to grow a church, talk about this. But it's where the text leads us. And if we're going to worship rightly, if we're going to praise God rightly, if we're going to chase Him as He is worthy and called, we've got to understand exactly who we were before He called us. Because if we overestimate our goodness, if we underestimate our sinfulness, we will devalue the cross. We will destroy the cross. You'll cut the truth and the reality of what the, the greatness of the cross, you'll we will completely undermine it. Because God really didn't do much to save us because there really wasn't much to do. When the reality is there was a great amount to do. And I'm here to tell us today and encourage us that no matter... No matter your sin, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter where you are right now, I'm here to testify, and the Word of God tells us that He indeed loves us the same way that He loves Israel. He's faithful, and He's forgiving. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For as many who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, whatever it is. The message of the cross is this, that I love you in spite of you. That I love you in spite of who you are. I love you in spite. Repent and return to me and I will receive you. I will receive you. He says in chapter 30, verse 2, And return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Do you see the faithfulness of God? Repent, return to the Lord. Here's what the cross reminds you and I of. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. No matter our sin, no matter our rebellion, here's the good news. Grace much more abounds. Grace abounds. 
The gospel is for us, believer, non-believer alike. The gospel is for us. That is why Jesus came to draw us from our sin, to pay the sin debt, and to set us free from the slavery of sin. And he's brought us home. And then the Bible says not only that, he adopted us. Just like Hosea took Gomer back in, God has taken us in and he's loved us with an everlasting love in spite of our past. And here's what he said, love me. Love others. In the same way that I've loved you, here's the response, love others. And it's very clear from the outset. You can look at Luke 1, verses 76 and, and through 78. Jesus came to save sinners. Luke 1, 76 to 78, it says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of God which the sun, which, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. Jesus Christ came to fulfill God's message or, or plan of forgiving sinners. When, when John the Baptist came in Luke 3, verses 3 through 6, same message. And he came into all the district and all the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every Ravine will be filled and every mountain will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. It's Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the one that all those sacrifices, all that stuff in the Old Testament pointed to. His name is Jesus. When, when, when Jesus began his public ministry in Luke 5, it didn't take very long to make it very clear this is what he was about. He, he, he heals and he says to them in verse 20, 20, seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Way beyond just physical healing, your sins are forgiven you. Only God has the power to forgive sins. Jesus Christ came to do that because he's fully God. And God's solution for sinners was the coming of Jesus Christ. That's God's solution for sin, that Jesus Christ would bear the sins of the whole world. That he would make way a way for salvation to happen by, by, by taking care of the sin debt. He didn't just brush it under the rug. He didn't just act like it happened. No, his son died to pay the debt. There was a debt there. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. The debt had to be paid, and Jesus paid that for you and me. And when we make ourselves, when we act like we're good, and we don't act like we are who we really are, we make that debt to be so, so small when the reality is we were unable to pay for it ourselves. And yet Jesus Christ paid for it. You can look at Hebrews 10 to see that how Jesus Christ was superior to the Old Testament sacrifices. He put an end to them. All of that pointed to Christ. The forgiveness of sins had been accomplished. The good news is that the gospel is that the good news of the gospel is that those who believe in Jesus Christ and have their sins forgiven. That's Luke 24. Jesus came to forgive sins. Listen, the forgiveness of sins is God's work. We cannot do that on our own. We have to confess that. The forgiveness of sins is God's work. It's God's work. It is impossible. The forgiveness of sins is impossible for man to accomplish. That's why Jesus Christ had to come. That's why God had to put His Son on that cross, because man could not do it on their own. And in order to receive this forgiveness, we must confess, we must admit. That word means to agree with God. 
God, I agree with you, I'm a sinner. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in our self-righteousness, we have a hard time agreeing with God of just how bad of sinners we are. And that self-righteousness, that pride, keeps us from repenting. I pray that we would, by God's grace, would set aside that pride and we would repent. That's the same exact thing, by the way, that we see in Deuteronomy 30, verse 2, that I just read to you. He says, Return to the Lord and obey Him with all your heart and soul. He's saying, repent. We, we receive the forgiveness of our sins by faith, by believing in Christ, period. That word believing means building your whole life upon. You build everything around that promise with Jesus Christ. That's exactly what God was asking the Israelites to do, to build their life around the covenant that He had formed with them. Build your life around it. Salvation is about the forgiveness of sins. It's not about taking good people and making them better. I, I don't mean to be a downer here. I mean, the people pleaser in me all week struggled with this message. I, I'd love to come in here and tell us something different. It's, it, it's very interesting, even in the, in the midst of preparing this, I, God gave me a, a way of reminder by, by really sin. There, some of you may have heard of, of, of Rob Bell, and I guess he had an interview with Oprah and... and uh, uh, he basically said, you know, that, you know, the scriptures are outdated. They're over 2,000 years old. This is, he was supposedly a pastor. He was a pastor at Mars Hill for a while. And the, the scriptures are outdated. You know, who can trust a, a document that's over 2,000 years old? This is the same guy that also, a while back, said there is no hell. That a loving God would never send people to hell. Listen to me, if there's no hell, why did Jesus Christ have to die? If there's no hell, God is a very nasty, mean father to crucify his son. To pay the penalty of what? Here's the problem. There is a hell. And, and, and I have to be honest to tell you that he's being a liar. He's, a false, he's being a false witness to the gospel. There is a hell. But there is a heaven. And the way you get there is by Jesus Christ alone. God in his goodness in His mercy, in His forgiveness. He put His own Son on a cross to die the penalty of our sins so that you and I would not have to pay the penalty ourselves. And if there's not a hell, why did He do that? And what God is calling us to is to repent and return to the Lord. He says in 1 John 2, run, I write these things so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, you have an advocate, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our defense attorney. That word he is defense attorney. Satan accuses us of our sin. He's accurate. Jesus stands there and says, Father, I died for that one. Chris is a liar. I, God, Father, I died for that one. Chris is an adulterer. Hey, Father, I died for that one. Chris is a murderer. I, I died for that one. The list goes on and on. Satan won't accuse me of anything that I'm not guilty of. That may shock some of you, but in the biblical sense, you name it, we've all done it. In the biblical sense. I may not have committed physical murder, but I've been angry with my brother. Matthew 5 says you're guilty of murder. The, the very word saved implies that those who were saved were in peril. Matthew 20, 28, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. That I was captive by sin. There was a ransom, and it was death. And Jesus Christ paid the death so I wouldn't have to. 
That, that's the covenant that God has entered into. And listen to me, until we grasp the depth and the greatness of our sin, we won't really appreciate the cross. And the bigger, listen to me, the more broken that we are, the bigger the cross appears. The more wretched that we realize that we are, the bigger the cross appears. The more gracious that God is, the more more we realize how forgiving He is. We, we have to understand the depth of our sin and repent of it. Not walk around and, and act like when others sin, not act like we're not guilty of that. We are guilty of that. That's what, that's what the body of Christ is so, the awesomeness of it. We're not walking around acting like we're better than somebody. We've just, by God's grace, been saved. And we're to tell others. We're not better than the world. We've simply been saved from our sins by God's grace. And then he says, go out and tell. And the good news is this, you're never too sinful to be saved, you'll only be too righteous to be saved, too self-righteous. You're never too sinful to be saved, but your self-righteousness will keep you from being saved. Why? Because you don't need a Savior. Self-righteousness tells you you don't need a Savior. When the gospel says you have no righteousness, the only way you can be righteous is through Christ. And the question I have for us today is, have you confessed your sins and trusted alone in Christ who is God's provision for your sin. Have you done that? There is no greater, no more comforting truth in all the world than where Scripture says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom? He was the greatest. Chief of sinners. Foremost is the word he uses there in Timothy. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom? I'm the foremost. Paul appreciated the gospel because he appreciated his sin. And when I say appreciated, he understood the debt. Sin has been conquered and the punishment has been paid by Christ alone. That is the good news. That, that is the very essence of what sits before us on this table. When, when at, at the, as the time came for our Lord to be crucified for our sins, listen to what he said when he instituted the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What we do today is a celebration that our sins have been forgiven. And what I'm begging us today is just like it says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. I'm, I'm begging everyone in here, choose life. Choose life. Let, let's celebrate together the fact that our sins have been forgiven. Let's with all of our heart and mind as fuel ourselves by God's word to be loyal to, to every bit. That's why Jesus, why Paul would say, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Why? It's a response to having been saved. It's a response to having been free. I'm not, I'm not trying to earn it. I'm responding to it having been done for me. And you can sum all of this up, all of this up in, in Luke 7. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 7. And, and this is not in your notes, and forgive me as I was, 
I, I have deadlines and I have to get these things out. And as I was meditating on the scriptures and thinking through, this passage came to me and said, why not throw it in? We'll just be here till 11.15. It's all right. Look at me at Luke 7. Luke 7, verse 36. This phenomenal truth that Jesus shows, a phenomenal illustration. Again, a picture is worth a thousand words. Put yourselves in this setting. Now, one of the Pharisees, verse 36, was requesting him, that's Jesus, to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair. Again, in that day, a woman's hair was her glory. To have let it down and to wiped his feet with it was unthinkable. And kissing his feet, kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Stop right there for a second. What, what by that very statement is he not presuming himself to be? A sinner. You see where self-righteousness? See what self-righteousness to do? Listen to what Jesus says in verse 40. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. And Jesus is going to tell him a story. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgiven more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Here's the application. I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Listen to this. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little does what? Loves little. We, we respond, listen to me, we as a church respond to others the way that we feel like God has responded to us. If, if in our self-righteousness we belittle our sin, you know how I'm going to respond to you? By expecting more of you than I, than, than, than I feel like God expects of me. I'm going to expect you to be perfect. Why? Because I'm perfect in my own eyes. But when we understand that our sin debt was huge, you know what the response is going to be? We're going to be gracious with one another. We're going to be patient with one another. We're going to love one another. We're going to forgive one another. Why? Because we understand that God has forgiven us of more than we would ever, ever be able to forgive others. And that's exactly what this pictures. The Lord's Supper pictures the fact that Jesus Christ has made salvation available at a cost that was His life. And we have been forgiven much. When, when we realize how indebted we are to the Lord due to our sin, the response is that we will love Him more and we will love one another more. And in that, it's a good thing to realize the depth of our sin. We'll love God more, and we'll love one another more. And so I ask you to think about this before you come and take these elements. How have we loved one another based upon how God has loved us? 
Do we love unconditionally or do we love conditionally? Is our love for one another a performance-based love or is it a grace-based love? Do we love one another as God has loved being a covenant or do we love one another based on a contract? Hey, as long as you fulfill your end, I'll fulfill my end. Or it says this, regardless of what you do, I'll still love you. Do we love one another selfishly or do we love one another graciously? All of those answers go back to how we see Jesus Christ has forgiven us. The way we love others is the way we feel that God has loved us. And when we begin to see our sin accurately, we can more, that's the more that we can appreciate God's love and His forgiveness towards us, and that will overflow in the same to others.